Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In this episode of Trailblazers, we chat to a woman who forged a hugely successful Olympic swimming career and then began a stellar turn in the media. Transitioning into the business world, she's been at the helm of the AFLW and has held positions of the boards of Ovarian Cancer Australia, ASADA, Vic Health, Sport Australia Hall of Fame, the AOC, and currently Swimming Australia. Today's trailblazer is Nicole Livingston, OAM. Welcome, Nick. How are you? All the way from Melbourne. <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. After um, an interesting 12 months, we're not locked down in Melbourne anymore, so I'm great. <laughs> happy, happy days. Well, it was International Women's Day yesterday. As a woman at the forefront in your career endeavours, what does that celebration mean to you? Well, I think the celebration for me is reflecting on strong women that have been in my life and um, those women and girls that uh, I, I'm able to uh, affect or influence uh, in my life. So I guess there's a strong sense of reflection, but there's also a sense that we've still got a long way to go uh, in terms of it being uh, equal of opportunity and um, just equal of thought process, to be honest. And choose to challenge was the theme this year. Now, we've both got daughters. What do you think the areas are that you feel that women and girls perhaps really need to choose to challenge for those future generations? I think choosing to challenge um, strength of character and strength of mind and, and knowing your, your values and what you stand for, um, certainly lessons that I try to teach my own daughter, but also having that confidence. Um, I saw some really great um, promos and celebrations around International Women's Day. My favourite was one um, that uh, you know was, was going around talking about reflections of going for job interviews and, you know, you seem very organised, um, you seem very capable, but I wish you are a bit more confident. So, um, you know, having the strength of character to know who you are, your personality and know your strengths and, and really just dial into those. Yeah, Nick, you're busy as ever. Uh, now, it doesn't stop when you get home. You've got three kids. Uh, well, the twins are mm. adults now, aren't they? Um, what does your typical day look like? Um, we're still working from home, so um, we're working two days a week into the office, which is fantastic. Um, like everybody, the thought of working from home was brilliant for the first um, 12 months, <laughs> and then uh, to actually just have the focus and attention and not be, or not, I don't have to break up fights with the kids anymore. I tend to break up fights with the dogs at the moment. Um, so to actually just go into the office a couple of days a week, that's um, that's actually you know a, a great step forward for everybody um, around, not only the nation, but for Melbourne in particular because it feels like we've been out of the office for forever. Um, 
but yeah, we're in the middle of AFLW, delivering AFLW, where it's uh, just completed six rounds. We're heading into the seventh round, um, and it's it has been a week-by-week proposition in a, a world that's very uncertain and borders that change constantly. So um, we did get a fixture out back in November of 2020, but um, that got thrown in the bin very quickly, and um, there's been probably another 30 um, uh, takes of the the uh, fixture that have been thrown in the bin as well but we're pleased that we've got round seven to nine away and um, in terms of the fixturing and we're looking forward to booting this baby home as uh, they say. (laughs) Well uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show you're head of women's football at the AFL Uh, what were the specific challenges that you found the toughest to deal with was it actually just that fixturing and getting those matches on the park? I think it's a little bit like most um, women's sport and also Olympic sport where you are um, professional in heart, soul and mind but part-time in nature. So, um, it, you know, understanding that any changes um, that we needed to, to take or make um, meant that there was a ripple effect not only for players but also, also for staff at clubs. Um, so really making sure that um, every decision that we made we actually thought about you know, the big picture of how it affected people. Um, and even even the fixturing side of things, you know, it was like a massive jigsaw puzzle or, or Jenga, you know, one piece at a time, pulling it apart, thinking about, you know, if this team plays that team, who did they play in the last two weeks? Who are they playing in the next two weeks? Um, so plenty of challenges in there, but um, I'm exceptionally proud of where we've got to. And um, pleasingly, the footy has just been fantastic. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, how do the players deal with it? Because that's... That was quite tricky for a lot, not staying in, mm. in, in prime physical condition, but mentally really tough not knowing what's happening. Yeah, it is. But um, I, I think the, the good thing was was and is, is that they love to play footy and they're getting the opportunity to play play footy during a global pandemic. So um, I think they realise the, the um, fortunate position that they're in and they take, don't take it for granted. So, um, yes, it's difficult and, um, you know, they all have careers or study um, that they're doing. So, um, you know, constant conversations with employers and um, and trying to sort of give as much notice as possible, but that's not always the case. Well, in uh, a more normal existence, uh, as you mentioned, for Victoria now, are there things in your life and their lives that might always be different, do you think, since since COVID first hit? Oh, I just think the way that, um, that, that we process protecting ourselves I I think I I sort of have always thought that way anyway Steph to be honest my days as an athlete where you know we were a bit OCD about um, you know (laughs) hygiene and those kind of things because we never wanted to to get a cold or a flu right before you're about to race so I think just the way we travel the way that we look after ourselves those preventative measures I think will continue for for the rest of our lives Um, I don't think I'll go for a grocery shop or something like that in the same spirit as I used to. You know, it's the instant get into the car and get the hand wash on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's probably the the, um, the biggest difference. I guess the other difference, if I reflect on it as well, and I did speak to many of the players about this, is that if you're the type of athlete who is very OCD and has to have everything perfectly planned and in its position, uh, which quite often athletes are, it's part of the reason why they are so good, then you're not going to flourish in this kind of environment and you're going to really find it quite difficult. So you do actually have to um, slow down a little bit and, and just roll with the punches and trust yourself, trust that you're, you're a good athlete, that you've done the work uh, and that you have the ability to actually deliver when it matters. 
Well, it sounds like you're uh, you're taking that sort of mindset through into your post-athlete life, and that used to be your life, looking at all those sort, sorts of things. Uh, now that you've, you're in a different sphere, and we'll talk about the specifics of that later, how do you achieve a work-life balance? How do you prioritise? <laughs> do, you, do you have one? <laughs> Am I allowed to swear? I, Go on. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's bullshit, work-life balance. I think you always feel like you're under the pump um, and juggling, uh, hoping that nothing falls to the ground. Um, and and just trying to make sure that when you do take a break, you really do switch off. So um, I'll take a break once we've delivered the AFLW season. Um, you know, those that work for the AFL, it's been um, a bit of a, a hamster wheel um, with the 2020 um, delivery of the men's season then straight into the women's season. So um, you do have to run fast, but when you take a break, you do need to take the break properly. So I'll wait until we've um, delivered delivered the AFLW season um, and I'm confident that we'll get all the way through to crowning a premier um, in April so um, and then I'll take a break but yeah I, I just I don't know uh, what do you think do you think there's life of work-life balance I think you just always feel like particularly as a woman that's working with children um, you do always feel like you're, you're juggling and you're never quite in sync or balance. 100%. How old are your kids now? My big kids are 18, um, but they're both, uh, they have athletic pursuits. So um, I wish I could say that they actually help a little bit more than they do, but they don't. And my uh, youngest one's 13. Um, so yeah, it, it's still busy. Uh, the big kids are going to go off, hopefully, touch wood to America um, to take up some college positions. Uh, my daughter in swimming and my son in baseball. Um, that's in August. So that's exciting. And everyone keeps saying, what, you miss them? And I'm saying, nope time for them to go off in the big wide world and have their adventures, um, which is exactly what I did at 17. I hear you. Yeah, I moved to state at 17 and I couldn't wait to get away. I've got one that uh, seems to want to just stay at home, but uh, mine are all uh, <laughs> pretty much adults as well. And I got uh, I got two out of the house and one came back after COVID so, uh, or during oh. COVID. So I, I think it never ends. But you're right. Uh, when you say, what do I think? It's a bit like a hamster wheel, isn't it? You just, just keep going mm. and... Uh, and and think you know tomorrow's a new day and and you just get through everything. But busy people get stuff done, don't they? Um, what yeah. is what is yeah. your year looking like for the rest of it? So you'll get um, you'll get a bit of a break. Yeah, I look. I um the the year is is busy enough um, because it's not just my job um, as general manager of women's football isn't just looking after AFLW. It's the jewel in our crown and the most um, visible showcase of of women's football for Australian rules. But the other areas that I'm very focused on um, is in the women's football space. So um, that's looking at community as well. And one of the big focuses that we've got right now is getting um, people back to football. And and that's men and women, boys and girls. But in particular, um, women and girls, getting them back to, to sport particularly after what we've just been through with, with COVID, um, if things are tight financially, I do worry about the prioritisation of, of boys playing sport rather than girls. Um, so just making sure that we're, um, you know, we're, we're trying to um, make it um, easy for, for women and girls to want to play football and to turn up and to be able to play football and they're welcomed and it's a good experience. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the enormous success of the AFLW shortly. After the break, though, we take a trip down memory lane and jump into the swimming pool with our trailblazer, Nicole Livingston. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Well, we're chatting with Nicole Livingston. Nick, a long and successful time in the pool, of course. But where did it start? Is that how your sporting career got underway? Um, I was a little bit like my youngest is right now and that is he doesn't like to sit still. So my parents threw me into most sports just to try and wear me down. 
Um, and swimming was the one that I loved. Um, you know, it, it's seen as an individual sport, but the club environment that um, swimmers are able to be around is just wonderful. Um, so I, I loved everything about it. I played netball, I did equestrian, I ran, I did everything. Um, but swimming was the one thing that I just um, took to like a, a duck. Um, my older brother and sister both swam and I kind of just hung around and eventually they stopped and I kept going. So, um, But I made my first Australian team at 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, very young on to the Australian senior team at 13. There was, um, I think, about four of us at the same age. I think Dimity Douglas was maybe a year older than me at the time. But, um, yeah, it was nice to actually have girls my own age uh, going through the same thing at the same time. But it was a wonderful opportunity. And, um, you know, the next 12 years I was on the Australian swimming team, which um, is something that I'll always be proud of and, and look back really fondly on. Well, that is extraordinary. So you mentioned equestrian there. That's not normally a sport mm-hmm. people say I tried it out mm-hmm. as a kid. Did you have horses or that mm-hmm. was just uh, you went yeah. to pony club or something? <laughs> Yeah, did that too. So yeah, I had horses. Um, my aunt and uncle um, were horse trainers. Um, in fact, they won, I think about 1981 or 1982, they won a blue diamond with Rancher. So that was my mum's sister. So I grew up going to the farm and yeah, had a part Arab horse called Serena and had to give her up at about 12 um, just in case I hurt myself uh, as I was getting ready for swimming. So um, but yeah, both my brother and I both rode and um, yeah, I, I take a keen interest um, when the equestrians are on at the Olympic Games. Even got to call the modern pentathlon for the for Olympic broadcast um, and it was only um, meant to be as I was handing over from the swimming to the next event, which was the equestrian part of it and the next broadcaster didn't turn up. So I got to call a little bit more of that, which was fun. Oh, how brilliant. I love that modern pentathlon because it's not a horse they normally ride, is it? It's a really intriguing no, event. <laughs> Yes, yes, it's drawn, I think it's drawn out of a hat and they only meet, I think, the day before so or the day of. So, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Oh, that's super. Now, you mentioned that uh, you made your first Australian team at 13 years old. Uh, swimming, of course, is pretty much part of every Australian kid's life. But when did you realise that you were really, really good? Um, probably I only started at nine and um, although I look at that now and think that's so young, it, it probably was a bit later than most of the Queenslanders were swimming. They were all sort of swimming at five and six. So um, I went to my first uh, state championships at 10 uh, and then by 11 I kind of won lots of medals and um, yeah, by by 12 I was racing at the national age championships and winning lots of medals as well. And Was it always uh, backstroke? Well, no, it was everything. I swam butterfly, I swam medley, I swam freestyle, I swam backstroke. I actually raced for Australia in freestyle uh, butterfly. I did 100 butterfly on one occasion at the Pan Packs. Um, and I also raced um, freestyle uh, and made uh, Olympic B finals for freestyle and Olympic finals in, in relays uh, in freestyle. So backstroke and, and freestyle uh, were the things that, that I liked the most. Now, from someone that came from a swimming background, I was one of those Queenslanders mm. that learned to swim at a very young age <laughs> and, uh, and enjoyed it. Uh, the lots of laps, often early in the morning, often after school, and you're constantly, I think, a little bit weary, no matter how active you are as a kid. What kept you going at that level? I think, um, I think the fact that I was good at it, I loved it, I was having success, um, you know... I think particularly like school. Uh, I don't tell my children that as I try to continue to tell them that they need to focus on what they're doing. Um, but I loved swimming. So, um, you know, I was doing 25 hours a week by the time I was sort of 15, 16 years of age. I had brilliant coaches. Um, my very first coach was so focused on making sure that I had correct technique 
um, so that I not only was able to swim fast, but also from an injury prevention point of view, that that longevity uh, was there. So he did a great job. He was an American um, that came in uh, in the 1980s and took over as a head coach from Michigan. Um, and yeah, he, he was a wonderful coach. And then I had some other great coaches through my career, uh, including Gennady Turetsky, who recently passed away, uh, who was Alexander Popov's coach, uh, who was out here for sort of 10, 10 or so years, 15 years. Uh, and I learned so much as an older athlete with Gennady about the feel of the water and technique. And um, he was a fascinating man. Well, what eventuated was 12 consecutive years as a member of the Australian swimming team, 1985 to 1996. How much do you remember about that that first one? 13, you're just a kid then. <laughs> um, I remember... Um, being like a kid in a candy store. Um, there was a lot of older older swimmers on the team as well, and it was the year after the 84 Olympic Games, so mm. I'd watched it um, and been just in awe. Like, John O'Seban was on the team, but wow. most of those guys that went to LA were in um, still in party mode, and they'd made the Australian <laughs> team and were pretty relaxed. So, um, you know, I, I, I do look back fondly at the, those days and think, you know, thank goodness we didn't have camera phones or recording or social media because... <laughs> You know, there was some um, exploits that I watched on and saw that um, were quite amusing. I mean, the Mean Machine were on that first trip that I went away in 1985. So um, I remember lots of it. I remember the headline that was in the Age newspaper by a journalist by the name of Ron Carter. uh, And the headline said, Nicole's sightseeing must wait. Um, So I was actually running around having a look at the Sinjuku station and the shops. And, um, you know, and, and I was very quickly told by selectors that, after finishing eighth in the 100 metres backstroke final, that if I wanted to continue with the Australian swimming team, I really had to put blinkers on and focus on what I was doing. Ooh, uh, right. I took that advice very seriously. <laughs> nice learning curve there. <laughs> of yes, course, there yeah, were there yeah. were three Olympic teams: 1988, 92, and 96. Did you have a favourite out of them? Yeah, 92, um, 88. I had no idea what I was doing. It was the last Olympic Games of of the DDR or the East German team and Mm. the USSR. I mean, it was pretty eye-opening. Those girls that I raced against, we now know there was systematic doping that took place, but wow, they were fast, they were big, um, and they were much more experienced than I was. Um, I finished fourth, fifth and seventh at those first games and um, knew that I wanted to keep going and, and try to win the Olympic medal. But Barcelona was just... You know, a beautiful pool, beautiful people, um, you know, everything was, um, I, I was at the peak of my career at 21 years of age and I'd broken a world record just before going to Barcelona. So I knew I was capable of swimming fast and um, yeah, everything kind of went according to plan. But mind you, I, I'd been working with a psychologist for sort of a year mm. before that, running through anything that could possibly go wrong or happen at the Olympic Games, having a plan B right through to Z to make sure that we were, weren't going to be thrown by anything. Um, so, yeah, I was the peak of my career and um, everything went according to plan and uh, I was fortunate enough to win an Olympic uh, bronze medal in the turn of back, um, which still I feel I can remember like it was yesterday, even though it was such a long time ago now. Wow. There were so many victories and a swag of medals through your career. Is that the one that stands out for you? Yeah. I mean, when you have a good performance like that, no matter what sport you do, um, particularly a sport like swimming where, you know, you can produce very high levels of lactic acid, which make you feel incredibly not only sick, but, you know, um, sting with pain. When you have a good performance, um, for me, like that day on the 20, uh, 31st of July, 1992, everything was in slow motion. Nothing hurt, um, you know, and I, I still can remember so much detail of it. Um, but, 
yeah, to touch the wall and look at the scoreboard and after watching the Olympic Games as a little girl, seeing that I'd won an Olympic medal was a dream come true. Well, you were awarded an OAM in 97 for services to swimming. What's it like to get that sort of recognition? <laughs> um, I joke and say it's an old age medal. Um, but I wasn't that old when I got it. I think I was 25 when I was awarded it. Um, oh, so old. So look, I mean... <laughs> I think it's probably something that you reflect on later. Um, I don't use it very often, to be to be honest. I'm a bit naughty. I should probably use it all the time, but um, you know, yeah, I only use it on um, odd occasions when I have to impress somebody or <laughs> or make my presence felt. Um, which uh, I wrote a reference for someone the other day um, who was up against a judiciary for for something at a baseball game, and uh, I think the OAM was read out very slowly at the hearing. <laughs> so I only pull it out when I need to. It's the gravitas. Uh, tell me, though, you made a successful transition into media. Uh, how strange did it feel to be at an Olympic Games and commentating instead of jumping into a cosy and goggles? Um, well, the first Games that I went to was in 2000, and I actually I broadcast the trials and didn't get to commentate on the Olympic Games, but I'd bought a swag of tickets and got to sit back and watch my teammates race, which... Mm. Um, you know, I felt every bump and lump and, um, you know, every nerve with them. I remember watching Susie O'Neill uh, win the 200 freestyle and then line up for the 200 metres butterfly. And I just remember watching her and looking at how nervous she was. And, you know, she was pasty and pale and, you know, and as history shows, she didn't win that race. So I just, you know, I, I think I felt fortunate that I wasn't wearing bathers and jumping back mm-hmm. in. Um, but blessed to to commentate for 23 years um, on sport that I loved um, and that was swimming but got lots of other great experiences and we we worked with many of the same people um, really big characters you know people like Daryl Eastlake and Max Walker and um, you know Ray Warren you know there's some really amazing characters um, who guided me helped me and um, some incredible women who were more behind the scenes back in those days than in front of the cameras um, but yeah, I really do feel blessed about the opportunity that I had to facilitate some remarkable achievements from some really wonderful athletes. Tell me, did it give you more sympathy for that pool deck interview? I mean, I don't even know what that's like for a swimmer. You're absolutely stuffed. You come out of the pool, you peel off your goggles, there's a camera in your face. What's it like to have that from both sides? Yeah, it's um, it's uh, not an easy thing to do, but I, uh, you know, I'm proud of the swimmers. And and in fact, if you look at, I mean, you've come from a swimming background, but you look at people like Lisa Forrest, who worked in the media mm. for so many years, um, Gian, Joe Griggs, myself. Actually, we were all backstrokers. Um, but uh, you know, you look at how articulate swimmers are, and and you know, they wear their hearts on their sleeve, but they're actually able to articulate it after a race. You know, Kate Campbell. I love listening to Kate Campbell speak. Um, you know, they, they are so articulate and they share their passion and their story so well. So, um, yeah, gone are the days where you kind of don't know what you're saying after a, a, a question on pool deck. They're, they're pretty well-versed now. Well, the Tokyo Olympics are in the middle of 2021, but first there's an AFLW season for Nicole to concentrate on the end of next up, which... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. That's some footy. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. 
Nicole Livingston is with us. Nick, after an Olympic career as an athlete and still as a commentator, of course, you've moved into the business world. How did your role as head of women's football for the AFLW come about? <laughs> you sitting comfortably? <laughs> Have I got a story to tell you? No, um, I, I had um, I'd been working um, as CEO of Melbourne Vic Centre, which is one of sort of the biggest, most successful swimming clubs in the history of, of swimming in Australia. Um, it was the swimming club that I raced for: Michael Klim, Gian Rooney, um, you know, Mac Horton, so many um, Olympians. Uh, so I was running that at the Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre, and took in um, six athletes into the Rio Olympic Games and Paralympic Games, and had some really great. Success success but that job was seeing right through from learn to swim to masters and everything in between so um, I had done that for four years took a break and just was looking after the kids doing some speaking engagements and felt it was time for a new challenge so met with a recruiter and the AFL head of women's football job had landed on their desk that day um, so it was completely um, fortuitous and I was asked if I wanted to go uh, throw my hat in the ring and I said yes and the reason I said yes was for the experience um, and as we think about International Women's Day I mean one of the things that women don't do well is to put themselves forward um, into those possibilities if they don't think like they've got everything on the checklist of the mm. 10 things they need. Um, and whilst I hadn't played football, um, what I did have was a strong um, strong experience, both from an administrator, an athlete uh, and a broadcaster in a sport that had very clear pathways and um, was very successful for both boys and girls. So I went to the first job interview, um, thought it was okay, but I did it more for the experience. Rang the recruiter and said, oh, I'm you know, not really sure how I went, but you know, I'm grateful for the experience. She said, well, they've already called back, so you've got to go for a second interview. Um, and that ended with a fourth interview with Gil, um, just Gil and I talking about women's football and you know where, where we both wanted it to go. Um, and he offered me the job. So that was in 2017, December of 2017. Wow. So we're now about we're more than halfway through our fifth season. Well, great story. I would say rather than fortuitous, it's probably serendipitous that, uh, that you were there and do, doing a fantastic job. I mean, it's a sport that uh, as a kid for, for people, I'll say our age, uh, it was really only fringe for, for women and girls. How close did you come to be an, an AFL player? Um, my closest was um, having a photo taken with Tommy Elvin, Stephen <laughs> Silvani and Adrian Gleeson from Carlton in 1987 when I'd won Pampax and they gave me um, an honorary membership and a, and a Guernsey. So um, the number one soft oh, Guernsey awesome. is, is the one that I got. Uh, and David Parkin actually said to me, oh, gee, I wish, I wish there was girls footy and I wish you were in my team. You'd be amazing. You and Tracy Wickham would be amazing in my back line. <laughs> um, so that's as close as I got. Um, but I grew up going to the footy with my mum. Don't get in the way of my mum's family or a footy team. She would always pick a fight um, to defend both of them um, and have great memories of going to watch Carlton with her. So, um, yeah, have uh, grown up Melbourne, have always been around it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so I had an understanding of it but just didn't play it. Well, you managed to actually see that idea of uh, women and girls playing come to fruition. How hard was it to get traction for the AFLW to become a reality? Well, Gill um, had the foresight and the commission had the foresight to actually move it forward. It wasn't supposed to start till 2020. Thank goodness in 2015 he made the decision to start it in 2017 because you look at the rise of women's sport and whether or not we have kind of pushed and prodded a little bit um, the, the other sports that offer the green and gold and also a domestic league. Um, you know, if we hadn't have gone early, I think we probably would have been 
playing catch up. Um, but but I do believe, I mean, we've got 420 women that are signed to AFL, iconic AFL clubs. Um, you know, they are part-time in nature, but when they are there for six months of the year, they're, you know, completely um, into high-performance environments playing Australian football. So, uh, you know, I'm proud of what they're doing. I'm proud of what we're doing. And, um, you know, when we talk about even just the pure saturation of numbers of opportunity for women to play an elite professional sport like, like Australian football, um, then, you know, it's, it's going pretty well. And were the affiliated men's clubs all 100% on board? Yeah. Yeah, we've got four more clubs um, that are knocking at the door. Um, obviously, for the Sydney market, the Swans aren't in, but GWS is. Um, and then we've got Port Adelaide and we've got uh, Essendon and Hawthorne who are without a licence but uh, really do want to get involved. Um, I think probably what we need to do with New South Wales is to continue to build the talent. So a lot of the talent does come through, um, you know, other markets like Victoria, but we are starting to see more and more talent come from New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, girls and women are playing footy, Australian football in New South Wales and, you know, people like Elise Parker, Beck Beeson uh, and the like that have been born and bred in New South Wales, um, you know, people are looking at them going, well, I can do it too. Yeah. Uh, tell me, how tricky is it for those players to be fully invested in a football career? As with many other sports, women can't survive on a, on a pay packet a short season provides. Is there a roadmap to maybe one day having a competition that can support players full time or is that still a bit of a pipe dream? Well, it's still an ambition and an aspiration, but, um, you know, we're only five years old. The men's game is 150 years old, so we've, <laughs> we've got a bit of, bit of time. And, and they only became professional sort of in the 1980s. Mm. Um, so we, we've got a little bit of time, I think, before we can get there. But what I would like to see is just the furnace temperature being turned down a little bit so um, that it's not as stressful for the six months that the players are um, going full pelt. Mm. Uh, I will, what I will say is that I've, I always worked um, or studied when I was swimming so um and and going to the olympics i was still working um so i don't want to see a time when you know we've got a cohort of players that are only focusing on playing football because sport is cruel it's unkind and it always ends before you want it to Mm. Uh, and we need to make sure that they've actually got something to be able to go straight into um you know otherwise we end up with a whole range of and a raft of issues that we have seen in men's sport Mm, but the groundswell of support for it is is huge. Did you envisage the way it would go absolutely gangbusters on its inception? Look, I think um, the original game was meant to be at Olympic Park in, in Melbourne, across the yeah. road from the tennis centre that held about 2,000 people. Thank goodness they moved it to Princess Park where you know they could get... I think um, it's almost like an urban myth now. The numbers keep going, 24, no, 25,000. You know, there were people hanging from the rafters. They found gates that were left open that they'd lock and then come back five minutes later and they were open again, sneaking people in. So, um, you know, I think that initial game gave everybody a strong sense of um, this, this had legs. And it's not just about women playing professional football, Australian football. It's also about what it means for our community. It's opening the doors at football clubs having um, men think about women differently and and just having opportunity for for women to experience things that they've never had the opportunity to experience. Um, You know, in some some places that you wouldn't imagine that it's taken hold, like Western Sydney where GWS is, you know, women and girls are are coming to watch footy, they're coming to play footy. uh, And and when you see something like that, Haneen Zarika leading the way for the Muslim Mm. community, you know, it's just, it's fantastic, the, the doors that it's opening. 
Well, the current season, as you mentioned, has a few weeks left to run as we speak. What are you enjoying the most about this one? Uh, it looks like we might have a new premiere, <laughs> Collingwood in the box seat. Collingwood is six and zip, so they're um, they're going well. As a Carlton supporter, I am smiling and saying, <laughs> yes, Collingwood's going very well. Um, what I'm enjoying is is the style of play. They're getting much more confident. Another pre-season, another season, more matches of experience. I love seeing them run along uh, the wing, bouncing the ball, uh, and seeing the, the confidence of not only taking one bounce, but two, three bounces and, and having a shot at goal. Um, you know, you didn't see that three years ago. There was always the second guess of, I'm on national tally, am I going to be able to bounce this properly? And now they're just running. They're running, they're kicking, they're passing. You know, contested marks, uncontested marks. All of our data is just flying through the roof in terms of margins and scores and those kind of things as well. Um, so I'm just really pleased with, with... And we've got girls now, Steph, that have come from right through the system, from Auskick into the AFLW. Yeah. Um, so we're going to see that... Um, just explosion of, of these uh, tremendous skills. Chloe Malloy, I don't know whether you've seen her snap mm. a goal on the weekend, you know, doing a 180-degree spin and unbelievable. Um, clocking it over. It was just unbelievable, yeah. So for anyone who hasn't seen an AFLW game, the rare sports fan that hasn't watched one, um, what should they be <laughs> looking out for? Who should they be looking out for besides Chloe? Um, Well, I mean, there is a race for the top six. Uh, Top six go through to our three-week finals. Um, So certainly uh, lots of positions up for grab there. But at the top of the table, we do have um, Collingwood. Fremantle's going great. Erin Phillips, if you haven't seen Erin Phillips play, for Adelaide, you really should be looking out for her. She's just magical. Um, You know, just some wonderful women leading um, from the front and showing girls that really you can aspire to be anything and anyone and I think everyone can see someone that they resonate with in the 420 players that we have um, from all walks of life, all different journeys. And, um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm really proud. We've got two teams across in, the, in WA now, um, so two teams up in Queensland. It's, um, it's, it's fantastic. Sure, a super momentum. And, of course, as well as heading up the AFLW, Nicole has been busy as a board director over the years. After the break, we'll talk some business. Stay with us on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Well, Nicole Livingston's taken some time out of a busy schedule to share some of her experiences. And Nick, what was your first experience of a board position? Uh, My very first board position was the 2007 World Swimming Championships in Melbourne. It was an organising committee. um, And that was a wonderful experience, even just from um, inception, talking about some of the the ideas around the World Championships. I mean, we were talking about having um, a diving pool built into the Domain Park. And I mean, none of it got up. It was quite quite way out there. But um, we did manage to build an Olympic swimming pool in Rod Laver Arena. um, And (laughs) for that period of time, it was called the Susie O'Neill pool um, and, you know, got to be around and see the likes of Michael Phelps, um, you know, Grant Hackett, all those guys just uh, swim so so beautifully well. Yeah, that was my very first one. That's so exciting. Now, you did have a role on the board of ASADA. Uh, How did that come about and, and where do you feel our fight for clean sport is at? Yeah, it's really interesting, um, you know, watching the Shana Jack story on Australian mm. Story um, a couple of nights ago um, and just seeing the length of time that it's taking for her case to be, I know it's under appeal now, but for her case to be finalised is just, um, you know, it, it really is um, quite devastating for athletes. Uh, I do fight for clean sport and um, I think that during the period of time that I competed, um, you know, I raced against against swimmers that did cheat 
did knowingly cheat or um, in some cases with the East Germans, I don't know that they knowingly cheated, but they were certainly part of a, mm. a program. Um, yeah, I think um, that technology has um, become so um, so much better now that, um, you know, we are uh, catching out or um, athletes are getting caught up into um, positives that, that may not have been um, positives when I was racing. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I heard Kate Campbell talking about the fact that it could have been her and, and really where we're at now, any of us can, can, you know, be caught up in something like this by simply touching surfaces or cross-contamination mm. with the way that the technology now works. So it's a bit of a fine line. It's certainly not... Um, it felt like it was almost more black and white when I swam mm. um, where, you know, athletes were, were getting uh, caught for things that uh, were much more obvious, you know, like a, a raised testosterone, epi testosterone level, whereas now it just feels like from a pharmacological point of view, there are so many more things that they're mm. looking for and the technology has improved so much more. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm no longer um, sort of – I did a lot of work with the Australian Olympic Committee with Live Clean, Play Clean as well, talking to athletes about making the right choices and, and about individual responsibility. And, um, you know, it, it is an individual responsibility to do the best you can um, to make sure that you are competing clean. Now, away from the sporting sphere, you've had roles on the likes of the Board of Vic Health. And, of course, with your sister, you helped found Ovarian Cancer Australia, of which you are now a patron. Now, that kind of been easy, but could I imagine that it was a very rewarding endeavour? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, Vic Health, um, I actually recorded a television commercial with them in 1987 um, for the Quick Campaign as an athlete and then to be on the board and um, move through to being vice chair or deputy chair of Vic Health um, is something that I'm really proud of. It's one of the oldest um, health promotion organisations, a, a world leader. Uh, and then to be able to um, help try to make a difference to ovarian cancer survivors and patients um, after my mum passed away in 2001 from ovarian cancer. We're 20 years old, Ovarian Cancer Australia, and we know that we're making a difference just in terms of even raising awareness and advocating for ovarian cancer. Um, it's received um, a lot of uh, attention and publicity, which is really important, but it's also um, received recently some, some really solid funding. There's no detection test for ovarian cancer um, and it's uh, it's called a silent killer because it really does sneak up um, and unfortunately most women by the time they're diagnosed they're diagnosed in the later stage um, and uh, the outcome is not always uh, successful in fact it's more often than not that it's not successful. Mm, it's, a, it's a really tricky one I did note that you have uh, a survivor uh, on your board which uh, that must give everyone a, a, a lot of hope. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, you know, if, if we can intervene um, with ovarian cancer um, before it does get into those late stages, which is why it's so important to have the awareness taking place uh, and particularly awareness around the symptoms and actually asking the question of your doctor, you know, could it be my ovaries? Probably mm. not something for the blokes to ask, but um, <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly important to actually ask that question. We often say, if in doubt, rule the ovaries out. Um, so, yeah, again, we, we know that we're making a difference and hopefully one day in the not too distant future we'll, we'll actually have a detection test for ovarian cancer. But my mum um, had a gene which predisposed us to ovarian cancer. I inherited that gene and um, five years ago, I actually had my ovaries removed. So that's kind of the gift that my mother has has given me mm. um, to be able to take my health into my own hands. And 
um, you know, do what I need to do to protect myself. Well, it's amazing the work that uh, you and your sister have done in that, that space. In fact, you've taken to all this business work pretty much like a, a duck to water. Did you have a mentor or mentors, plural? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I um, had a lot of different mentors. In fact, um, Gabrielle Trainer, who is an AFL commissioner, was on that very first board with me in 2007 for the World Swimming Championship. So, um, you know, lots of um, different mentors that I had from a different business perspective or life perspective. Um, and if there's something that I, you know, and you, you will have the same, Steph, because I know you, um, you know, I like to think of having my own personal board. So, you know, somebody that can give me the harsh reality when I need it, someone that can, you know, give me a cuddle when I need it, um, someone that can just listen when, when I need to sort of get something off my chest. So I've got all of these different people in my life that is kind of like my personal board that I can draw on when I need to, um, to be able to be the best me. Um, so I really am an advocate of being able to have different people that, that you can give to, but you can also take from as well. Yeah, sure. And there are ever-increasing opportunities for, for women. There's probably still not enough, but it's, it is increasing. There's a way to go. But so great that it's now part of the conversation. Uh, within the women's sphere, what's the biggest gap you feel that needs to be addressed? Is it numbers? Is it pay parity? Or is it something else? Um, I think it's I think it's consideration and opportunity um, still. Uh, you know, there's some amazing stuff happening over with the NFL. I'm not sure if you've mm. had a look at any of it, but um, you know, they they've got eight women, and it doesn't sound like many, but it starts from somewhere. But they've got eight women uh, involved in um, you know really male traditional roles mm. in in football over there. That uh, you know, there was a couple that were involved in Super Bowl either from an S and C point of view or an assistant coaching point of view. So. Um, I look at what they're doing and um, I like what I see in terms of the Rooney rule where, um, you know, if there is a position that is being advertised with an NFL club, uh, it has to have um, interview positions that go to either women or minority groups. Mm -hmm. um, so they're really trying to, and if you don't get the job, that's one thing, but getting that experience of being in front of, mm -hmm. you know, people that are making decisions is really important. Um, so I look at what they're doing and I like what I see. Um, so I think there is still a way to go in terms of women being represented in those kind of traditional roles that mm. men um, still have a fairly firm grasp on. And how about as far as women's sports go in Australia? You and I were chatting in the break about our, our days at Channel 9 and, of course, uh, you've been at Channel 10 and uh, I think 7 and uh in fact, you've been everywhere, haven't you? Everybody wants you. <laughs> uh, so you, you've got a really good view of the spectrum. Uh, what's the best way to get more dollars, more screen time, more eyeballs maybe? I, I mean, Fox is introducing a pop-up channel for the month of April. Where do you sit on that? Yeah, we're going to be on that pop-up channel. So hopefully that drives um, some, some traffic and hopefully the guys um, dive into having a look at Fox W. Um, but I think, you know, I think... For us, um, the more we are seen on TV, the more women and girls are going to choose the sport um, or to either follow or to play. Um, and then I think we've actually got to the point, Steph, where people just watch the footy. Um, I go to the footy, I listen to it, I listen to what people say. Um, and gone are kind of the, the commentary around, oh, you know, my 15-year-old boy can play as well as these girls. You know, it's not, it's not this, it's not that. <laughs> 
um, it's now just there. You know, people are just cheering for their teams, which is great. So the more exposure you can get, I mean, it's difficult though, but the streaming platforms, uh, swimming have got Swim TV, the streaming platforms are becoming much more um, lucrative and um, easy for people to watch. So um, we also stream, we also have great partnerships with Seven and Fox um, and, and more people are watching sports. So um, I guess we can thank COVID for something um, that people have been at home watching sport when it has been able to get up and get going. Absolutely. Oh, you're such a busy lady and you've got, I'm sure, plenty more highlights still ahead of you in your career. When you reflect, Nick, on the experiences that you've already had, what makes you the most proud? Um, probably seeing um, my kids. Um, I feel lucky that I've been able to firstly have children and then secondly to have kids that are you know, going off into the world to have a great experience and um, are, are pretty nice human beings. Um, longevity as well, being able to continue to, to do something that I love, which is work in sport. Um, so I do look back on, on everything that I've done with, with a sense of, of pride, but I will always be swimmer number 331. Um, so the swimming is, is something um, that will always take centre stage in, in the memories of, in, of memories of my life that I hold. Um, yeah, swimmer number 331 and those experiences, they're still my best friends. They're still people that I speak to, you know, every day, every week. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I'll, I'll never trade in. Nicole Livingston, it's always a privilege to work with you. Congratulations on all your successes thus far. All the best for what's ahead. And thanks so much for chatting to us on Trailblazers. Thanks, Steph.